It's as human as anything we do. It can give us goosebumps at just the right moment. It can somehow explain a feeling we can't seem to pin down. It can define entire chapters of our lives. It can put us to sleep, or it can fuel revolution. It predates language, organized civilization, and maybe even Homo sapien itself. And it's everywhere. I'm Christopher Jones. Welcome to the first episode of Just a Theory. The purpose of this podcast is to take a closer look at the music that permeates our lives. You don't have to be classically trained or even musically inclined at all to have a greater appreciation of the sounds around you. My hope is that you, the listener, come away from this with a greater understanding of what music is, how it works, and why that matters. Maybe you'll hear something new that you like and follow it down the rabbit hole of YouTube. Or maybe you'll listen to your favorite song, something you've heard hundreds if not thousands of times, and hear something you've never noticed before. Ask yourself this. When was the last time you went to a coffee shop? Was it quiet? What about the mall? Was the constant murmur of the crowd the only sonic backdrop to your latest shopping trip? The holidays are coming up, after all. How's your Christmas shopping going? Anything is possible, but I'm willing to bet that there was, at least, a radio playing over some speakers in the ceiling. Maybe there was someone with a guitar singing breathy and torturously slow covers of your favorite pop songs or Christmas carols. Or maybe you just listen to your favorite playlist while walking down the street. When people talk about music theory, the knee-jerk reaction is often dismissive because, after all, did Paul McCartney and John Lennon carefully plot out their songs to make sense on a multitude of levels, measuring out every element and choosing every note specifically to have an intended purpose and to make sense in some kind of overarching rhetorical argument? Well, I can't answer that for sure, and if any of my listeners out there are close, personal friends with Paul, please feel free to have him contact me for clarification. But I'm willing to bet that the majority of songs you listen to on a daily basis were written because of one deceptively simple, or perhaps deceptively difficult, concept. The writer just liked how it sounded. At the core of music theory is not a set of draconian rules that dictate what music will be good and what music will be bad. Instead, the heart of theory is understanding why music sounds the way it does and why it works. 
The rules of theory, rules that I don't plan on talking about unless they're absolutely necessary, are developed after the fact, with a few exceptions. These rules try to explain what certain kinds of music have in common and how they all tend to be very similar. The approach that I'm going to take with this podcast is, well, slightly more interesting than that. I prefer to look at music and not say, why is this the same as everything else? But, why is this particular piece unique? So, that being said, please try to forget any prejudice you have against this mysterious and nebulous thing called music theory, and approach it with an open mind. One of my favorite questions to ask people is, what is music? I love hearing the responses, and I've never gotten an answer that I didn't enjoy. The question is so broad that it borders on the ridiculous. And the answers? Well, let's just say that the answers ultimately don't matter. What matters are the other questions that it sparks. The quick answer is this. Music is sound organized in time. I know it's simple, maybe a little too simple, but that's the heart of it. If that's a little too vague, how about this? A painting is how we decorate space. Music is how we decorate time. In the same way that much of visual art demands physical space, music demands time. In this way, it's necessary for a listener to become the fourth-dimensional equivalent of an art gallery for organized sound to effectively be experienced. Beethoven organized sounds in time. So did Led Zeppelin. So does the high school band that you may have played in or may have laughed at. So do all of the pop artists that are household names today and may be forgotten by this time next year. The important thing here is that what we call music is such a broad thing that one of the only common factors between all of it is that it's sound arranged in time. The magic of music theory is that it allows us to look at how these sounds are arranged and why they make us feel the way that they do. In order to go forward, we have to go back for just a second. If music is sound arranged in time, what is sound? Sound is a subjective phenomenon. It's the result of our minds interfacing with the world around us. Something disturbs the air and there is a wave of air pressure. Let's just say that, while I'm recording this, I accidentally knock over my microphone and it tumbles to the floor, in slow motion for dramatic effect, while I suddenly remember all of the bills I should pay before I can justify buying a new one. My microphone hits the wooden floor, and there is a bone-chilling crack as I question every decision I made in the previous two seconds. The impact on the floor causes a disruption in the equilibrium of my office, 
there is a spike in the air pressure, a very sudden, pretty significant increase in the ambience of the room as my investment in myself hits the floor and vibrates. This sudden spike in pressure is not sound. It's a wave in a medium. If my office is a calm, quiet pond, someone just threw something large into it and made a big splash. I couldn't see what it was, but it looked electronic and expensive. My eardrums resonate with this disruption, with the splash and ripples from my pond metaphor, and this is translated into an electric signal in the brain, which is then interpreted by the primary auditory cortex in the temporal lobe. This is sound, the subject of experience of an objective phenomenon. The old question about the tree falling in the forest comes to mind. Or maybe, if an expensive piece of gear falls and nobody has the money to replace it, does the podcaster make a sound? Who knows? I'm not a philosopher, accountant, or a physicist. I'm just a musician. So far on this episode, we've asked some pretty big questions. And I'm going to ask another. How does all of this contribute to music making us feel a certain way? Is that a result of conditioning? Are we taught from a young age to associate a specific sound with sadness and another one with happiness? I'm willing to answer that with a soft maybe and say that we'll keep unpacking it as we go along. When looking at the big picture of music and the role that it plays in our daily lives, it helps to look back all the way to ancient Greece. At some point or another, we've all come across the great epics of Homer, whether in school or even on TV. When these works were created, it was common for them to be sung, maybe even with instruments accompanying them. These epics were the original campfire songs. The prevalence of music in the culture of antiquity and its influence in modern Western music can still be heard today. One method for arranging notes in a specific order, called modes, takes many names from areas and groups of peoples that made up the Greece of antiquity. Just a quick warning, there's some technical jargon incoming. These modes include the Dorian, Phrygian, and Mixolydian modes, to name a few. If that doesn't mean anything to you right now, that's okay. I'm willing to bet, though, that you've heard them. The old English folk song, Greensleeves, also known as the Christmas Carol, What Child Is This?, is in the Dorian mode. Almost every Metallica song is at least partially in the Phrygian mode, and I may or may not be exaggerating. And have you ever heard ACDC's Back in Black? That's Mixolydian right there. In those examples, the ways that sounds are organized are all different and have different sonic connotations. Each one can evoke a different reaction from a listener and cause them to call on their own experiences to frame what they're hearing. But it isn't only the listener's experience that causes them to attach meanings to the songs. There's this connection. A connection in names between multiple cultures, a connection in time spanning multiple millennia. This isn't just a cultural or etymological artifact. 
This is the result of a continuous musical tradition that has been developing and changing for virtually all of humanity's existence. The idea that certain sounds can mean something specific is certainly not new. The ancient Greeks held a concept known as the doctrine of ethos. This meant that, to them, different musical ideas had the power to influence a person's thoughts or behaviors or emotions, and perhaps even motivate them to different kinds of actions. They believed that this was achieved through different, specific musical ideas. Think the archetypal hero wearing a cape and fighting crime or the villain with a curly mustache, a top hat, and a strange obsession with tying people to railroad tracks. The ideas may not be absolute in their meaning, but there's enough of a strong association that your typical audience will be able to get the idea without having to overtly state anything. So why does this all matter? Here we are in our modern world with our modern conveniences, in our modern lives, eating our modern fusion food and drinking our modern coffees, tending our modern homes and working our modern jobs. All of that said, we're pretty far removed from singing ancient epics around a campfire. I'd like to ask you this question again. Think of the last time you were in a mall. Christmas is coming up, and I know a lot of us are out and about trying to find those perfect gifts. When you were walking around from store to store, was the crowd the only sound you heard? I'm willing to guess, again, that there was likely music playing. Probably quiet, not intrusive, maybe even barely audible. But part of you heard it, and another part of you recognized sleigh bells or a favorite Christmas song from childhood and continued shopping, knowing on some level that you were fulfilling some sort of seasonal necessity. The music is a small part of it, yes, but a part nonetheless. Next time you listen to the radio or watch TV, count how many commercials use seasonal sounds. Without using words, vibrations in the air are subtly influencing your behavior, whether you know it or not. The doctrine of ethos isn't as far removed from modern culture as the past few millennia would suggest. That's why music matters. It's so fundamentally embedded in life and permeating throughout our culture that understanding music a little more means understanding our world a little more. And understanding our world a little more means understanding each other a little more. And perhaps even understanding ourselves a little more. But then again, it is just a theory. I'm Christopher Jones. Thank you for listening.